Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. My guests today are Simon Crowther and Stuart Steele. Simon is the founder of Flood Protection Solutions and Stuart is the CEO of Sedgwick International UK, which is in the business of insurance claims management. We're going to talk about how individuals and businesses can be better prepared for a worst-case scenario when it hits... We'll hear how an extremely challenging personal situation sparked a business success story. And we'll discuss how, in an increasingly unpredictable climate, we can weather the storm through better collaborations. Let's get to the conversation. Simon, Stuart, welcome. Thank you. Good to see you. Now, I should explain to our listeners that we've come into the studio today through the pouring rain and the wind, and it's very right and appropriate that it should be because we're going to be talking a little bit about inclement weather and preparing for the worst during the day. So more of that shortly, but let's get started. I'm going to start with our quickfire round today because I want to get to know you guys a little bit better. I ask all my guests on the lens uh, if they could have coffee with anyone and that gives me a clue about the sort of guys that you are Stuart if you could have coffee with anyone who would it be well I was thinking uh, it's a good question with all the uh, political uh, shenanigans that are going on at the moment I think it'd be very useful to be able to perhaps meet with uh, Mrs May and Mr Corbyn at the same time and have a coffee coffee with them both and would they sit down together that's the question well that would be if I could do that that would be a great sort of mediation uh, yeah you'd have to sort of be an adjudicator in the middle I think we'd have to do that but Failing that, if it had to be one person, I read a very, uh, very persuasive and impressive article in the Times with Jess Phillips. Yes, the MP on Sunday, who seems to be perhaps not dissimilar in 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 having a, an interest in finding out if there's a middle route between uh, these two areas. And she seemed she did come across as a very real and normal person, which I thought was just the sort of person that I would like to spend some time with. I agree. With. I see a budding diplomat uh, before me, Stuart, so thank you. A great example. Thank you. Uh, Simon, who would you sit down with? I'd love to go um, to coffee with um, Karen Brady of The Apprentice. Yes. She's a great representative for entrepreneurs, and I feel like I'm not quite sure how she's mastered it, but she seems to have so much presence that she could walk into a pub of rowing people, not say a single word, just walk in, everyone would turn around and shut up. And I don't know how she's done it but I just think she's got great character great presence and would love to go for coffee excellent I agree I'll join you if you'll let me it's a good call okay I feel like I'm getting uh, a sense of you guys already thank you well this is the lens uh, brought to you by business in the community and uh, powered by Fujitsu in partnership uh, with McCann my first guest today Simon Crowther you are an entrepreneur an award-winning entrepreneur, a former Young Entrepreneur of the Year at the Great British Entrepreneur Awards. So your studies began uh, through through university, but even at those early stages, there was an entrepreneurial underlayer, wasn't there? Just give us, give us a sense of how you got started. And uh, I, I know in particular you might want to take us back uh, to the summer of 2007, but let me, let me not steal your thunder. Tell us how it began for you. Um, so I kind of find that my entrepreneurial spirit and um, flooding were separate but became intertwined. So summer of 2007, I was only 13 at the time, um, we were living in Woodborough in Nottinghamshire, didn't realise we were in a flood risk area, our house wasn't on a flood map, Um, there was a little stream that ran through the village that in the summer was dry. And we woke up one morning and looked out the window and the garden was completely full of water and we thought, that's strange, must have been really heavy rain, imagining that the water had sort of fallen straight out of the sky and that there was no sort of fluvial involvement with a river or a stream. And uh, went downstairs, none of the electrics were working, and we realised at this point that the garage had been flooded and an extension lead on the floor 
um, had been affected um, and tripped the electrics, but we still didn't really think anything of it. The council came round and gave every other house six sandbags. There weren't enough to go round. But, you know, we thought that was a one-off. And two days later, um, the house got flooded to a depth of about six inches. And then this happened three more times in that summer. And we ended up being out of the house for nearly a year whilst it was repaired. There was an insurance claim in excess of £100,000. The upheaval, expense and stress is phenomenal. One of our neighbours, um, every time it rained again, he would you know, be very uncomfortable. And actually from doing the work I've done recently, um, people are now making the connection between being flooded and actually the mental health effects. Um, I believe insurance companies are starting to accept that mental health and counselling might be required after a flood event. I think for too long... Flooding has been focused on the economic impact, so we did a documentary um, looking at the other impacts, and one of the people we interviewed up in Cumbria was suffering with PTSD as a result of being flooded. Yeah, not not an area that we normally associate with that particular thing happening. And with, with hindsight, though, Simon, anything you could have done to prevent that, was that inevitable? Yeah, so um, after that, we never, ever wanted to go through the process again. It's horrible, wouldn't wish it on anyone. Um, and we scoured the market looking for things to defend the house, and it was either, you know, at the time, 2007, really expensive or really slow. And we came across a Canadian product called a Watergate barrier um, and ended up importing one. And then five, well, it sat in the garage unused for five years. And then in 2012, um, we used it, rolled it out. The main street became like a brown, fast-flowing river, and it completely saved the house from flooding. Wow, so this is like a massively improved version of sandbags, essentially. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's reusable. It's cheaper than sandbags. It's easy to store. You can carry it, transport it, use it in different locations. And obviously works, whereas sandbags are very ineffective. Okay, so at what point does this flick from saying, I want to defend my family home, to I think there might be a business idea in this? Tell us about that transition. So I'd already been being quite entrepreneurial at the time. Um, My family was in a lot of debt, so I always had to sort of stand on my own two feet if I wanted something. And I'd been um, washing cars at the local golf club, which was actually quite lucrative, um, made good money from it. So I was in an entrepreneurial mindset and I'd just finished my A-levels and was ready to start a civil engineering degree. And I honestly thought that my degree would be a sort of continuation of the summer holidays. I thought it would be easy and it really wasn't at all. And I looked and this product wasn't available in the UK, but it was in 30 countries around the world. So I ended up sending the pictures to the um, manufacturer and, you know, saying how grateful we were and actually expressing an interest in bringing the product to the UK. Okay, so you're what age at this point? I was 18 and um, I remember I arranged a meeting in Paris to go and meet them and my dad said, you're not going. Um, You're far too young. They'll never, never want to do business with you. And my mum, on the other hand, was like, you've got to go for it. What have you got to lose? And in the end, I ended up going um, and secured the sole UK distributor rights for the product and the sort of company's grown from there and we now do all sorts of different projects. So give us a sense of the company today, something you're proud of on that journey and, and what you hope it could achieve. So we've um, done sort of massive projects, um, been involved. One of our biggest clients is probably either the NHS or Thames Water. Mm, NHS, why, why the connection? Just talk us through that. How does that work? Um, to protect a hospital from flooding, so sort of a vital building. Um, we've recently done a project I was quite proud of as well, was a, a care home in Kent. Um, When you think of the impact of flooding, people tend to think residential. But actually, if you think of a care home, all these people lived on the ground floor. They couldn't necessarily move themselves when there was a flooding. The staff aren't trained to respond in incidents like that. The upheaval is massive. It's not just the damage to the building. It's the business disruption um, and worked on a project so that hopefully that won't happen again. And when we think in 
the big picture about who is at risk, if you like. Any any misconceptions about this conversation? What what tends to get, I guess, misreported? And, and how do you see it? I was recently at a um, talk we organised with the UK Flood Partnership and Claire Dinnis from the Environment Agency was speaking. And she said for a long time it's sort of been published that one in six people are at risk of flooding. And um, that uh, makes you think, you know, you're probably one of the five that aren't at risk of flooding. But that's now changed to realistically everyone has some kind of risk of flooding because we think of flooding as being from a river but actually it could be that you leave the bath on for too long it could be that a pipe bursts mm. it could or your neighbor you, leaves the bath yeah, on for too long or you've got a roof leak or actually there's a burst water main in the road and you're not in a flood area and that affects you so there's so many different types of flooding um you know it it could be anything and everyone has some risk of flooding you might turn up to your office one day and find that there's been a leak and actually the office is completely flooded, but you might not be on a flood plane. Right. And, and and we've heard a very personal story about a family, yours in this case, and much more broadly. Um, this can massively impact businesses, can't it? Yeah, hugely. I mean, um, if you think, like I was saying, if you turned up one day and the office was completely flooded, most people probably wouldn't have data backed up elsewhere or... Um, think about securing documents in waterproof folders because, you know, they might think, oh, well, we're on a first floor. We're not affected by flooding. But equally, there could be a roof leak. Right. So we're going to talk in practical terms uh, about things that anyone listening uh, might do differently. I, I, I do think on the negative side, some businesses probably don't ever recover from that, actually. Yeah, I think mm. there, there is evidence of that Yeah, quite frequently. Yeah. So, so Simon, that is a very personal story, which you have turned uh, into a business now serving all sorts of organisations. Uh, Stuart, welcome. Hello. Thank you very much for joining us on The Lens. Now, um, Sedgwick International UK, I mean, this is a massive organisation globally, over 65 countries, 21,000 colleagues around the world, and even in the UK, over 1,800 people, 300,000 plus claims a year. But in very broad terms, this is about insurance claims management. So give us a sense of what that really is. Yeah, thanks, Ollie. It's uh, in, in broad terms, uh, the business is split into three distinct areas. So we have a commercial and specialty business. So we've got about six or 700 people in that. We have a home business that specializes in uh, obviously the home and domestic market. And then we have a TPA business that's really focused on uh, sort of corporate program management. Mm-hmm. What's TPA? Third-party administration. So and in, under there, we'll be looking at uh, typically things like motor claims processing for co- uh, company fleets and, and that, sort of, that sort of thing. So the business has, uh, has been formed through the amalgamation of Cunningham Lindsay, uh, Veraclaim UK, which was owned by Sedgwick and was acquired in uh, 2014. And the business was put together in, in April 2018. And for... Throughout the time since then, we've been focused on bringing effectively three independent units together, trying to get it onto a single platform, and obviously keeping our clients and our colleagues uh, happy and engaged with uh, with the business since then. So, and so it's actually, going okay. So actually, you're supporting thousands of organisations, but a bit, bit more personally, where, where did that journey begin for you? Where did you start out? Well, uh, I got into insurance at the age of 18, so I joined uh, the Zurich Insurance Company as a management trainee. One of 50 people that joined at the time, I think by the time I, sadly when I left after three years, there was only about three or four left, the uh, the aim was to go around the various departments. So I'd been two or three weeks in the life department, then in underwriting, and then I was sat down. We had what we refer to now as the sorting hat moment, when somebody sat down and said, well, this is this is where we want you to go. As it happened, the guy who was uh, making the decision on me was a UK claims manager, 
and he just commented in sort of slightly negative terms on the other areas. And as I didn't disagree with him, he said you started off. You went Gryffindor on Monday, and that was it. Gryffindor, Hufflepuff, a whole lot, whatever. <laughs> so. so we had so that was that was started out, and then I once I understood what uh, where all the best claims went, they went to loss adjusters. So I wanted to become a loss adjuster, and uh, so it just sort of rolled on from there, really. Yeah, because it can seem like a sort of a, a sort of complex industry, you know, to, to the to the outsider, and uh, and I include myself in that. But just give us a nitty gritty example of how you would help an organisation really to get back on their feet. They come to you. What would an example of the sort of um, the sort of claim that you're dealing with be? Just get, paint us a picture. Well, significantly, if you look at a commercial claim, uh, often, and to Simon's earlier point, the key piece is to get the business back up and running. So it's not the, the decisions that you take on day one, you have to have more than an eye on just, well, let's get the cheapest quote to get the three quotes in for the building works or three quotes into the machine. If you've got a situation where the business is going to go under if you don't do something quickly and providing and critically that the, uh, the policyholder has got their insurance correctly sorted out, then you'll focus most of your efforts on, uh, on ensuring that through the increased cost of working processes, you make the right decisions to keep the business going. And as an example, we've had situations where we've, we've actually bought a competitor business or we've encouraged the organisation to buy a competitor business to survive rather than go through a process. So it's just about being a little bit creative, a little bit innovative. Got it. And so stepping back from that, presumably a lot of this could have been made a lot less stressful for the organisations and the businesses if they had been better prepared. Absolutely. And so let's have a think about, and please chip in, Simon, ways in which an organisation could have got its act together, could have done things a little bit differently that would have saved a lot of heartache further down the line. What are some examples? Well, I'll give you well, give you two quick ones, and I'll hand uh, hand give Simon an opportunity. Business continuity planning is critical, and uh, but having said that, ninety nine times out of a hundred, when the event happens, the business continuity plan has not foreseen everything that you'd expect it to be, and it's one of the first things that gets thrown out of the window. But the discipline of doing it. The business learns an awful lot about about how to and uh, what the issues are. Things like with flood, we have a sort of flood kit somewhere where you know all the information is that you're critically going to need to be able to manage uh, your claim or manage your suppliers or manage your colleagues and staff. And so this is distinct from the overall business plan that an organisation has. This is a specific game plan for if the worst situation hits. Correct, and and you should. You should uh, constantly review it. You should test it. So thing, you know, sensible things are having um, to off-site uh, solutions if all your phone's down in one place, being able to flick the phone somewhere else. If the server's flooded, have backup facilities elsewhere. All of those things. Frankly, you could argue that it is, it's common sense, but it's good common sense, and it's, it's very well worth spending the time of getting some people together to uh, think positively about what you know what could happen. So Simon, let's build on this in terms of would you be ready? A big question for presumably businesses of all shapes and sizes. I mean, do you think British businesses are ready for these um, increasingly realistic scenarios? I think um, businesses are becoming better, but I think there's a long way to go. I think um, with flooding, a lot came out of the sort of very large Cumbria floods in 2015. One of the pieces that came out from that was actually businesses could think of having a flood buddy So, for example, is there somewhere else that you could go and work and vice versa if the worst did happen? If it was fire or flood or anything, if all of a sudden the team turn up to work one day and they've got nowhere to work, where would you go? You don't want to just stop working. 
Um, and that's a sort of practical consideration that you could have. Okay, where can we, you know, if we can use our phones remotely, where where do we actually go and sit as a team? Does an office have another facility where we could go and borrow a meeting room or a boardroom or what have you and vice versa and actually have those sorts of arrangements in place? Do you think that... Um... Stuart's point about this sort of, um, you know, continuity planning for a business. Could that apply in the home situation as well for a worst case scenario? I wonder if, sorry to reflect on it, I wonder whether that could have helped in your personal situation. Yeah, I I think, you know, it's great to have a flood plan or an an emergency plan as a property. Um, Now, with flood warnings becoming better as well, um, people tend to have grab bags in risk areas where, you know, if they've got vital medication, they have that in there. They have documents in there. Um, actually, it's something that they can get to quickly and they know, you know, in the flood plan, where are where's the electric shut off and, and those sorts of things. I was very taken by that flood buddy idea, Simon. I wonder, Stuart, how can businesses do a better job of supporting each other? I'm thinking particularly of larger businesses. You know, they must have, you know, hundreds, sometimes thousands of smaller companies in their supply chains, their customer bases we can move beyond flooding if you like. But have you seen ways that work? Because in a sense, that's part of your responsibility, I suppose, as a larger business, perhaps. Well, it's it's important. I mean, an observation I was going to make there is it's it's not just where you're located, perhaps if you're close to where there might be some flooding, but if your supplier is and you've got customers to service and you can't get the parts that you need because your supplier has followed. So that encourages organisations to work more closely together. I mean, yes, at a level, you could you can have a number of alternative suppliers or use a range of suppliers and lift one or two up. But actually working together and understanding and perhaps a bit of cross-pollination, secondment of people from one business to another, uh, just helps the, uh, the overall process. And I, I think it's probably fair to say that uh, big businesses could do could do more and it may be that some businesses think of it as as giving away uh, IP or benefit but in actual fact when you look at it in the terms we're discussing here the benefit is to all the parties uh, in, in in the process and uh, it's certainly something that we advocate strongly. Yeah, and presumably that could be seen as more than just the right thing to do. There could be a very direct commercial benefit Absolutely. to supporting others. Well, that's fundamentally uh, that's core to it. If you're in a situation where you rely on your suppliers and your suppliers are your shop window, your suppliers are perhaps providing the components that go into your product, then it's essential that they, uh, they've they got the same vision and the same approach and uh, they're and they're committed to you in the same way that you're yeah. committed to your customers. So there can be this cliche of sort of entrepreneurs and big corporates being from Mars and Venus. But I sense seeing the two of you, you may have questions for each other, but also I wonder to what extent you can see each, each other in each other's oh, shoes, if you like. Very clearly. Although, although I'm currently running a business, we've got uh, 1,800 people in the UK. The business we set up in uh, 2010 had just me in it. So it's it's grown a bit since then. Right. That's so good growth. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I can't take credit for, for all of that. <laughs> so, so in that sense, then, Stuart, what would be a question uh, that you might chuck at Simon? I'm very impressed in uh, the dynamism that you uh, you evidence and the backstory and where it's come from. And it's very, very warm, very encouraging. Where would you want to, where do you see the next step in development for you, Simon? Um, personally or for the business? Well, for both. Okay. Um, so I've just achieved my chartership personally, which um, for me was a big tick. It was something I was working towards and with that, because it's Chartered Water and Environmental Manager, I realised I'm probably too focused on flood and water. So I want to learn more about the environmental challenges that we're facing. So personally, I'd love to develop in those areas. As a business at the minute, um, we seem to be doing a lot more work abroad. And 
that's really promising. We've just done some work in Barbados. I'm still trying to obviously get a site visit over there. but uh, I assumed you have. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. I'm working on it. So it's uh, it's nice to actually do stuff overseas as well. I mean, if we look at like Australia recently, they've had extreme heat, extreme floods, snow. It's just the weather is so variable at the minute and affecting so many different countries around the world. Right. So, um, Simon, perhaps a question for Stuart. So I'm really interested. How did you go from just one person to where you are now. The entrepreneur in me is sort of interested. Obviously, you've merged with other businesses, and but how did you get from sort of just running as one person to the scale? Well, we set up the business in the UK with uh, private equity backing with a, a sister company in the US. So Veraclaim US set up Veraclaim UK. So there then was a journey where I was hiring some key people from previous companies we've been in. Then we had the opportunity to to buy the assets from the company that I used to run in the organization before. So that brought us up to about 44, 45 people. Uh, we continued to grow organically. We uh, were very fortunate in the sense that what we were doing, we had some fantastic people. So the market liked what we did. So we got more and more work. Uh, we made a couple of acquisitions along the way. So by the time the end of December 2017, when we were uh, ready to merge with Cunningham Lindsay UK, we were about 250 strong in the old Veraclaim uh, company. And we'd made, I think, two or three acquisitions along the way. Can I ask you quite a personal question? We're talking about resilience in, in homes, in offices and businesses. Personal resilience, any technique that you personally use, because clearly these are high-pressure building a business, running a large organisation, any technique you use which you'd share with a listener? It could be a big thought, it could be a very practical thing. It's funny you use the word resilience because in flood now there's a massive um, sort of issue with people using the word resilience. People are thinking it as actually emotional resilience rather than resilient as in reducing the impact. And they find it, or some people find it almost offensive to be told you just need to be resilient. I think I prefer the term being prepared rather than being resilient being prepared can obviously cover a wide range of things, but I think in business there can be you know moments which are incredibly stressful, especially growing a business because you don't tend to be surrounded with people who are doing the same thing. So one of the things I've always said is try and surround yourself with like-minded people or people who have the same sorts of challenges because it's amazing how a quick conversation over a coffee can actually lift a massive weight off you. There's obviously all sorts of things you can do as well. I'm a big big yoga fan, but mm-hmm. <laughs> surrounding yourself with people who have the same sorts of problems. Yes, and they say a problem shared is a problem halved as well. So no, excellent tip, Stuart, a thought on that, be it preparedness or resilience. Well, I think um, well, for myself, I think it's, it's important not to have a distinct part of your life that is not work. Uh, I mean, anyone listening to, to me speaking here knows me well will say, well, you're always at work. <laughs> But there are ways of, ways of escaping. And also find not to take yourself too seriously. Yeah. You know, be, be normal and, and accept that you can't, you can't get every decision right. I mean, I read somewhere that 70, if you get 70% of decisions right, that's pretty good. But the important thing mm. is to make the, make the decision, make the decision fairly quickly. Right. I get your point and agree, Simon, around uh, people. Now, we can't always choose the, the guys who are going to be in our team. And there are you know, people with different strengths and different weaknesses. But working closely with the people 
who you rely upon and they rely upon you shares the load and helps us to be prepared or resilient if we if we use that word. I just well. get this sense when I'm talking to you both that, and you would be involved in this, but if we got our act together, collaborating more between organisations, surely that's got to be a good thing to improve our flood defences as a country. Now, very easy to make a wishy-washy comment like that, but what would that look like in practical terms? And be as blunt as you like. What do we need to get our act together on if we're going to become... Um, better prepared as a nation? What do you see? And uh, if you were an ultimate power, what, what sort of changes would you like to see, Stuart? And then Simon. Um, I think it's important that people take responsibility for this as individuals uh, as well. We, we can we can help. Uh, if you look at the, uh, for example, Would You Be Ready? Uh, we've got a website um, page here which encourages small and and VSME businesses and SME businesses to just to ask themselves a few questions. Now, Simon, let's be a bit even more provocative. Who's not involved in the conversation? What, what do we need to change? Who, who needs to do more? Um, I think a lot of it needs to be driven from sort of government looking into education. I think it's hard to shift behaviours for sort of older generations, but actually working on educating the young about the risks of climate change and how they're going to move forward. And it right. will be that we we get better at it if we start from a a young age but it's it's also sort of finding that right way we can educate but finding the right way to engage so if you look yes you know the government's been encouraging recycling we all know we should recycle but it wasn't really until David Attenborough went on Blue Planet 2 and we saw you know a baby whale die because of plastic that all of a sudden everyone became involved with recycling so it's finding that way of capturing the public's attention and I think in climate change and, and flood risk, we haven't done that yet. No, we do, and we do have a funny habit of stopping talking about it when the clouds clear and the blue skies well, come great. back. And that's the point with, uh, I think I'm saying earlier, with it gets to March, April, the, the winter's gone, the cold weather's gone, and people think, well, when it's not, don't need to worry about anything now until October, November time. Although we know statistically that often the worst floods are happening in June, July and August. Yeah, because when I was flooded, it was June... June, July, two thousand seven. So, so let's have another. Let's have another. You are creative individuals. Let's have another idea to how we fix this because we can't just say, "Well, that is the human condition." We forget about stuff until it happens. We're going to have to get David Attenborough on the case as well. <laughs> well, high-profile role models matter. Yeah. But do young people really want to be lectured by the government on this, Simon? Who should the messengers? I don't be? think it's about being lectured. Right. I think people tend to find disasters interesting. It's about making them interesting to the right people. We don't want to lecture them on how to manage flood risk. We want to make them aware of the danger of what could happen. Back in 2007, people were going down the main street where I live in a rubber ring. Now you wouldn't do that because you know, well, people in the village know of the dangers of actually, there could be a manhole lid that's burst mm. off and you could be sucked under and you could drown. And it's those sorts of things that, you know, 2007, there was no health and safety awareness within flooding. That has been a big shift. I do think now people are more aware of that and the sort of diseases that might come as a result of the flood water. People were, you know, rowing down the main street in rubber rings there was one section where the water diverted and went down a private road that was sort of wasn't tarmacked it was gravel and it got jokingly named the rapids and people <laughs> going down there in rubber rings i don't think that would happen today mm, things are changing right um on a personal note which is i ask all our guests on the lens to give their previous self a piece of advice i want you to go back to the start of your business journey Stuart what, what would you say to a younger Stuart Steele well I would say um, it's a marathon not a sprint and particularly the, the nature of the uh, business that I'm in 
Uh, if you look, not that I ever did look sort of very, very young and uh, fresh-faced, but if you did, if you're going to be in a situation where you're handling some of the more major losses and talking to guys from the board of a company, you have to look the part. Uh, but the, the same thing applies to, uh, I think, to leadership as well. But things happen, you learn from the experience, you can't rush to experience, you can't buy experience, you have to, you have to get the knocks, you get the ups, you get the downs, all of that. So that would be the, the advice to myself. So just take it easy. If you do the right thing, more often than not, and you, you're determined, uh, you will succeed. So there's a, there's a note there around patience, but I sense you've got where you are through impatience. So, so how you, you don't seem like, you seem chilled and engaging, but at the same time, I know there's a real strength there. So how, how do you offset those two then? Well, it, it, I'd be the first to say, and I've said to many, many times, that I have, I believe, the world's lowest boredom threshold. The only time I watch films is if I'm on a long haul flight because I can, literally can't go anywhere. Unless a film grabs me straight away, I, I struggle with that. So I don't know whether that's um, a good thing or a bad thing. It's not. Um, it doesn't seem to have held me back personally. But uh, yes, I am. I am impatient. But the advice I would give to myself is to be more patient. Right. Hence why you're giving yourself yeah, that advice because yeah, yeah. it, it takes a while. Right. Simon, a piece of advice. I think um, mine would be to care less what other people think. Mm. I think when I was setting up my business, um, people just assumed, or I felt like they assumed I was mad, it wasn't going to work. Um, and then there became sort of a shift where I was taken seriously. But I felt like to start with, I had to prove that I was good or I thought I was good. And now I feel like I don't necessarily have that. Mm. Um, so I think it's definitely care less what people think and focus more. There's a photo, isn't there, of um, the Phelps swimmer at the Olympics where he's focusing on his swimming and the other guy's looking over and the guy looking over is behind. So I think just focus on doing right. what you're doing mm -hmm. well. That's and do good. you think in some, you started the business when you were 18. Mm -hmm. How old are you now? 25. 25. In some, has your age been an advantage or a disadvantage? Initially, definitely a disadvantage. Um, there were some big obstacles and I think, you know, when you're negotiating million pound deals and you're 22, people necessarily don't take you as seriously as they would. I still found, um, you know... That could work to your advantage, of course. It could do. I, I, there was a point where I sort of tried to hide my age and then I thought, actually, no, I'm proud of what I've done. Um, I turned up to a site survey, you know, degree in civil engineering, chartered water and environmental manager, a lot of experience within flooding. And the first question I asked when I arrived was, please, can you tell me what your credentials are? And I feel like if I was 50 turning up, I wouldn't have had that. Right. And particularly for the business. So this is flood protection solutions. The dream call that comes off the back of this sort of conversation, really taking you to the next level. Who would you most like to collaborate with? It would be great to collaborate more with insurance companies, do more projects like the Cumbria Showcase event, but actually get those onto wider TV rather than it just being YouTube focused. I'd love for there to be like a country file episode on flooding. Right. I'd like that to be a good collaboration and try and get the public a little bit more involved. Right. Now, you've been doing a lot of collaborating internally recently, Stuart, a big merger <laughs> now now behind you. But anyone you'd like to see Sedgwick collaborate with a bit more? Uh, yes. I mean, one of the we're a big company, but we tend to be focused very much in the, the post-loss environment. So something has to happen before we swing into action. Right. And we have a lot of knowledge of... How, you know, why things have happened. We uh, work with the organisations to put them back together. So we've got all that post-loss experience. So one of the things that uh, we will be looking at is 
is to use that post-loss expertise to get more into the pre-loss and risk management space, which is where Simon and I perhaps start to become closer together. Because right. uh, and typically we've been paid to sort out disasters. Now, if if we're all more resilient and if we're all better with our risk management, there will be less claims happening. And that's got to be a good thing right. for the society. So. So we'll need to, we can help with that. Not just economically, but I always say, if you think of a flood, that's everything goes to landfill because it's contaminated. Think of the huge carbon footprint of all of that stuff that has to be thrown away. If you could be resilient and stop it happening, that's a massive environmental benefit as well as the economic and, you know, social benefit. Right. By being prepared, the the root Simon, the I don't, I don't like, huge. I don't like your use of the word resilient. There, um, <laughs> better prepared, better prepared. Yes, you're right. Sorry, uh, I'm slipping uh, into it. And the, I think, uh, to, I think to an earlier point, uh, as the UK learning to get, I mean, you made a good point about the older people perhaps less engaged in environmental matters than they should perhaps be, but different parts of the world they live with the climatic uh, uh, challenges more so than we do. So they change their behaviours to do so. Now, we either have a situation where if the climate change uh, story continues, we're going to have to learn to do that, or we start to get ahead of the curve and start to, you know, to take the actions and uh, across the whole of uh, society and community to uh, to prevent that. I think here we've, we've been very privileged and a lot of people would be of the opinion of someone will sort it out. There'll be an engineer, a scientist will engineer a solution rather than actually working with nature. Um, That's another sort of shift people are seeing within flood control and probably should across the whole of the country is you can't just build walls higher and higher. And what can you do as like a catchment to reduce the flood risk? And it's, it's a jigsaw. There's lots of different things. But I think it's going to be like that with power or energy or you know we're not just going to have a reliant on wind energy there's going to be a mix and a jigsaw of different environmental aspects and I think because we've always been privileged and always just found a solution we'll keep developing we'll keep developing we've never had to really do that but I think we're at that tipping point where if we don't there could be mass calamity. Right. And it makes me realise that these conversations have to be had in a more inclusive way so that people who have other pieces of the jigsaw feel that they can come uh, to that table. And both of you have made me reflect on the fact that the upside of these conversations might be a healthy looking balance sheet, but it's actually people's lives having been improved and not sent on a huge roller coaster as has happened very personally. That's the Mm. sort of one of the passions that started me out is I didn't want other people to go through what I went through. And it's still so satisfying, although working with a resident might not be very lucrative for our balance sheet. Actually, when, you know, they call you up and say you've saved their house from flooding or saved their community, there was a project we worked on in Devon and we stopped 12 homes from flooding. And, well, I normally say 12 houses, but if you think houses, you think... um, Bricks and mortar. Yeah, bricks and mortar. You don't think of the 12 families' lives that actually would have gone through the upheaval and it really makes you quite proud of the work you do and the ability to have that difference and make a difference. Well, I want to say thank you to you both uh, for giving us such a human perspective on this huge and uh, important issue. So, Simon Crowther, Stuart Sill, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. If you like what you heard, please leave us a comment and subscribe to us on iTunes and you'll get the latest episodes as they drop. The Lens is a business in the community program powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. Today's episode is produced and directed by Harvey Winter with music and editing by Giselle Hall. Our executive producer is Sergio Lopez. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.